Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, producer Jonah here. And just a reminder that after the guests have gone, the conversation continues on our Twitter, Insta, and Facebook communities. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's topic. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to The Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We are here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other's viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. It encourages us to talk to each other and not at each other. And on that note, Emil, what's our topic for today? Thanks, Lloyd. The uh, topic today is liberalism versus conservatism, which offers the best model for society. Now, the terms liberalism and conservatism mean a whole lot of things to different people. So I, I want to define exactly what we're talking about here. By liberalism, we mean the political philosophy that came from thinkers uh, like John Locke in the 17th century and through the 18th century Enlightenment, which champions individual rights and freedoms, private property and equality before the Lords. It's really linked with the rise of democracies and of capitalism, replacing social structures defined by hereditary, class and gender privileges, as well as the divine right of kings. Now, today, liberalism as a philosophy crosses over the left and right of politics in in most Western countries. The left-leaning or progressive liberals focus most heavily on the equality side, ensuring that people are not just treated equally under law, but that the race itself is fair, that there's an equality of opportunity. Now, this progressive liberalism relies heavily on the state, including through higher taxes and wealth redistribution. But we're not today interested in progressive liberalism. We're interested in the liberal right. It's focused much more on individual freedoms, individual responsibility, property rights and equality before the law. It wants to ensure that wherever you start the journey of life, you're given the opportunity to succeed based on your merit and ambition. There's an emphasis on the free market which again puts the onus back on individuals to make their own choices. Now, the other great political philosophy of the right is conservatism. It's so different from liberalism, yet both philosophies share the same bed uneasily much of the time in right-wing politics. Now, conservatism, I think, is harder to define than liberalism. In one sense, it's a stance, an attitude that is suspicious of change and asks us to proceed with caution, knowing that social order is easy to break and hard to build. But it's also a political philosophy that values a whole range of things that liberalism largely threw out of the public sphere, a belief in tradition, customs, a common moral code in authority, loyalty to community and country, in duties rather than rights. It puts social stability ahead of individual freedoms, or in fact, sees our freedoms stemming from our ties to one another in community. The purpose of this episode is to explore these two great movements which clash and crash into each other within the political right, competing for dominance. 
as we look at which one offers the best model for society. We've got two fantastic guests. Who are they, Lloyd? Thank you, Emil. Our two guests today are Tim Wilson and Gray Connolly. Let me start with Tim first. Tim is a federal liberal member in the Australian Parliament and is chair of the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Economics. He was formerly Australia's Human Rights Commissioner. He is a committed liberal and a strong advocate for protecting free speech and freedom of religion. He has a book that was published in 2020. It's called The New Social Contract, Renewing the Liberal Vision for Australia. And he has postgraduate qualifications in energy, carbon management, diplomacy, and trade. Our other guest today, Emil, is Gray Connolly. Gray is a barrister, has advised and represented many corporate and individual clients in commercial and public law matters. He's an advisor to government and has advised the Australian government on national security matters. Gray is a graduate of the Royal Australian Naval College, holds the rank of Lieutenant Commander in the Royal Australian Navy. He is a Naval Intelligence Officer and has served on deployments with Australian and coalition navies all over the world. Gray is a passionate conservative and a frequent panelist for ABC Radio and Television and has been published in various journals. Having told you about our guests, I think it would be fair to say that both Tim and Gray sit firmly within the right rather than the left of politics. But they advocate for very different models of society. In fact, Tim has said that conservatism offers little or nothing to young Australians. And Gray has dismissed liberalism as naive. Both of them have great respect for each other, and so it should be a fascinating discussion, Emil. Let's bring on the guests. Well, thanks so much, both to you, Tim and Gray, for joining us. Um, we're going to launch straight into it here. So, Tim, can you give us a sense? What is liberalism? Where did it come from? And why do you think it's still the best model for society? Well, if you read the books that um, try to surmise the history of liberalism, it says it has no fundamental identifying start point. It isn't like somebody came up with uh, Marx's Capital or something like that. It, it's, it's the culmination of ideas um, over time. But I would argue that it's principally the idea of breaking apart, apart power. Um, politics is all about power, who has it and who can utilise it. And, of course, there are different ways in human history that people have accumulated power through force or hereditary privilege or the like. And liberalism is about saying, well, how do we break apart these powers? Because it's as much about what it's against as what it's for, um, but very much focused on what it's for. Uh, if you look at um, most other political ideologies, it, they're focused on how they harness centralised power in the hands of the few to achieve an objective. Liberalism is about how you decentralise that power and the institutions you need to be able to decentralise that power to empower people. And that's ultimately what liberalism is about, is how do we empower, in the Australian context, 26 million people versus uh, Canberra or state capitals. And um, what are the institutions? So in, in economic terms, we have open and free markets, which allow for private property, which is the decentralised ownership of the nation, as well as, of course, price signals and the like to drive growth, but obviously to make people full participants and empower them economically. Socially, uh, we do it by respecting people's rights and freedoms to be able to decide how to live their own lives and a deference towards individual autonomy Autonomy and self-determination. Um, when you're talking about um, political power, we do it through um, 
democracy and obviously universal franchise, so full participation in voting, but also in how we have competitive systems of government. So we have a federal system which uh, limits the amount of power to um, Canberra based on what it needs to do its core job, which is in the interest of the nation, and otherwise to create um, states which compete against each other with different models of governance. And COVID-19 mm. has brought that out very clearly, that there's clear mm. differences. Mm. Of way. And so, so that they learn and they innovate. But how to keep power as close to the people it serves, economic, economically, socially, politically, uh, to empower people because it's easy to change the direction of the conversation around your kitchen table in comparison to your council. It's easy to change the direction and the outcomes of council over state governments, etc. So the further power gets away from people, the less it becomes reflective and representative of them. So it's very much about empowerment. That's fantastic. Let's move to you, Gray. Tell us, tell us about conservatism. What is it? Where did it come from? And why do you think it's the best model for society? That is a very good question. To conserve is to protect something or to preserve it from ruin and spoilage. The better question, I think, is what is conservatism actually conserving? To answer this, we must, as always, go back to our fundamentals, to our foundations and to our roots. And as an idea, conservatism is about protecting the human person in the context of protecting and preserving that which gives the human person his or her life. None of us enters this world as a stranger even if that is how we may feel from time to time. We are each born to parents, who themselves are born to parents, and so on. Our families go on to form larger families, be they ancient clans or tribes, or, more recently, nations. In turn, these families, in which the human person exists, form political communities, and they constitute, in every sense, a nation-state. It is through the juridical nation-state that the national family formally constitutes itself. We then have order brought and security provided all according to law. The state may be a monarchy or it may be a republic, but regardless of its form, the state should descend from our own particular tradition and our own particular experience, fashioning the law and thus what the state does and what the state does not do. Yet even apart from the state, there are hierarchies, there are customs, there are duties which flow from our traditions and experience, and not all are codified. We champion absolutist and unfashionable virtues, such as truth, loyalty, duty, prudence, and perseverance. We as conservatives respect and we periodically reform the works of our ancestors. But conservatism views our ancestors' achievements as bequeathing to us a social order. We as conservatives do not knock down a wall until we know why that wall was first put up. We grant no special privileges to those who just happen to be alive right now or who may form a transient electoral 51%. In the conservative mind, each of us, and indeed all of us, are trustees. We are custodians. We each have more duties to the past and to the future than we have rights in the present. In short, where the Liberal is concerned for the individual's freedom, the Tories' concern is that the individual know and do their duty. Fantastic, fantastic. Just to stay with you, Gray, here, conservatism seems to value things you talked about, traditions, cultural norms, not because they're true, but because they work. There's a sort of circular logic that you need to get your head around to understand it. For example, you don't need to believe that the tradition itself is right. It's right because it's a tradition. Its value uh, is in the fact that it stood the test of time, creating social cohesion, and sort of is an end in itself worth protecting. 
But what, what about when traditions or institutions stop being relevant or we realize they're just wrong? Conservatism doesn't have a great history in the various social justice movements. We now see self-evident like equality of gender, race, sexuality, even individual rights. How does conservatism judge and adapt its traditions if it's so enthralled to the value of traditions in and of itself? That's that's something I'm just going to have to say that's not quite true. William Wilberforce was a Tory. He was a, he was an evangelical Tory. That's that that with respect is ridiculous. Liberal liberalism actually one of the highest arguments in liberalism is obviously revolutions. The very end of the American Revolution, one of the last demands the American rebels made as the British were evacuating New York is they wanted their slaves back because the British had freed them. So that's that's frankly ridiculous. That's nothing I do see. I do, I will agree with you. Yes, conservatives generally. Are, are skeptical of change, if not hostile to change. The Duke of Wellington used to say, reform, reform, are not things bad enough already? Because there's a natural conservative impulse that people proposing change often have other agendas at stake and they often have other reasons for doing things. So yes, we are skeptical of change. And when what you may see as, say, an advance in gender and gender equality, I see as something dangerous. When you're arguing for a certain, well, you, you're late to the party on, on legal equality or this or that, it's probably because, as I said, conservatives, we see things as they truly are. There's a stance that seems like conservatism is also not only a political philosophy, but a stance, a sort of cautiousness to change because they know that that's, you know, society is probably easier to break than it is to pull to pull together. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right there. But it's also it's it's a moral stance. It's also saying actually to, to go to Tim's point about power. Powers can always be abused. One of the ways we restrain that is through moral norms, and we believe in absolute moral norms. So, for so instance, how, does mor- men- how do moral norms change then? Because conservatives have moved with the times as well as being um, sceptical of the movements. I mean, women do but, vote but, now. Yes, well, I mean, I mean, um, well, I mean, the really interesting thing about the, the women's suffrage thing, particularly, say, um, in, in pioneering states, is very often women's suffrage came in pioneering states before, say, uh, more settled urban areas because uh, male pioneers had seen the hard work that women had done and they thought they were every bit as entitled to have the vote as men did. So, so it comes from uh, the the relationships perform- rather than a sort of universal ideal of everyone's being equal. Yes. I hate to use this phrase, but it comes almost from a form of performance legitimacy. Yes. I hate using that phrase because it was originally coined to describe why people in totalitarian countries go along, go along with certain regimes. And it's like as long as they perform people do well, that was my but, question about the circular yeah. logic that there's a things work because they you know we wear the clothes we wear and therefore that's what we're wearing and therefore it works like how do you change the clothes if the times change i guess you change it more slowly i mean i mean to answer your first part of your question i mean the the, the phrase i always use it's a great phrase i learned many years ago in another life and it's a saying that the british army has which is the regiment fought well because it has always fought well in other words people who grew up in that regiment learn the traditions of the regiment. They learn the regiment has never surrendered, it's never run away, and you you want to be true to that heritage, and so you don't do it. So the regiment has always fought well because we've always fought well, and you would not want to disgrace that. In mm. terms of your question about cha- moving with the times, one of the points about being conservative is you actually don't, not all change is good, and actually you don't want to move with the times. Frankly, I, I, I and, and Ever? you can say- well, or that, some of the time? Some of the time, you don't want to move with the time. I'm very happy. I'm very happy to be um, in a minority of one on a lot of things. Yeah, right. Uh, and so, and 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 I think this is one thing that perhaps you can't get escape of, is that I think at the root of conservative, it's very hard to be a conservative. Say if you're an atheist, I, I genuinely believe that. I think it's very hard. One of the things that animates most conservatives is that you're happy to be abused and 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 denigrated in your own time because you think when you live, you live and you die, you'll go to meet your maker and you have to give an account. 
Right. That's interesting. I'm going to move to Tim now. That's that's a fascinating thing, which hopefully we'll have time to come back to. But what views, Tim, do you think liberalism of the right, I guess you call it, and conservatism share? What what binds the two philosophies together? Well, I think it's firstly a belief in institutions, and they can perhaps be for different reasons. In the in the Australian context, it's the institutions that form the structures of our liberal democracy, the constitution, etc. And of course, we're seeking to conserve them because they're the uh, the institutions that exist as the structures of our modern Australian history. Um, but also because of how they ultimately seek to reinforce and empower individuals to be able to go out and live their lives and break apart central forms of power. Um, but it's also this sense of responsibility. And, I, you know, we always talk, see this a lot at the moment where people are talking a lot about rights, but what people are forgetting is the responsibility is the other side of that coin. And I think conservatism does have a very clear understanding about like with institutions, that sense of responsibility and mutualism towards others, because that's the basis in which you exercise um, the relationship between you beyond you uh, and what you need to do to care and support for others. So one of the reasons that liberals believe very strongly in individual empowerment is because if people can stand on their own two feet, they're in the best position to then lend and support their assistance to others to be able to do the same. Whereas if you're yeah. if you're on your knees, you're never going to be able to help other people get off their knees too. So um, it's about understanding that while uh, we don't want to recreate the world, or I certainly don't want to recreate the world, and I don't think most true liberals on the centre-right do, they see the power of institutions and how they constrain the individual from their own indulgences and, as Gray correctly points out, the abuse of power but also what's necessary to ensure that people are in the best position to stand up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like both movements, as opposed to the more progressive left, have a real distrust of government. I mean, you did say in your book that the biggest threat to liberty comes from the coercive hand of government. I imagine um, that, you know, that's shared by by both sides. Is that, and, 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 a, and a distrust of the technocratic elites who are making centralized decisions on behalf of everyone is would, would you would you agree that that's something that naturally binds the two philosophies together i don't i'd, I'd be interested in gray's answer to that question actually because i'm not totally sure he does i mean i, I think there are you know uh, uh, individuals left to their own devices can become their own threats to liberty that's why we believe on the right in institutions as a as a pathway yeah. in part to civilize and people's behaviour um, and stop the indulgence. But I think in the modern context, one of the biggest risks we have is this constant push towards centralisation of power and that there's somehow an expert class who knows best. Now, again, this has been brought out in many debates in recent years where people want to just trust the experts, defer authority, because uh, they'd rather kind of be a pawn in the piece of a much bigger picture, um, rather than saying, starting from the basic premise, which is, Politics is about power. If you give more power to central authority, it comes at the expense of the individual. And, of course, the more we gravitate and say there's a perfect system out there that if we only left it to those who had the right education, the right skills, or the right expertise, that it wouldn't end with us all ultimately uh, giving up our autonomy and our, and our capacity and our morality and our responsibility to each other yeah, for yeah. a perfect outcome. Can I, can, I, can I just come back to that? You can. Because Tim, Tim's apprehension is right. Conservatism classically does not have a problem with the state. Conservatism has a problem with bad people capturing the state. Uh, the, the British Tory Alan Clark said the mission of the Conservative Party was to seize and hold power. And what he meant by that was 
there are the right people to have power and their job is just to stop the wrong people with bad ideas from having power. Now, I know that seems almost anathema, but you have to understand if you take a moral view of, of politics and the polity, it actually, there actually is a sense in that, that there are wrong people with bad ideas who should never be allowed power. And so, that, so conservatism doesn't have a problem with the state per se. To stay with you, Gray, looking at you know conservative values, in in some sense, or to seem to me that they might have more ha- have more in common with today's progressive left values, you know, such as group identity, community. There's a weird overlap between conservatism and progressive left. How are they similar, and how do they differ? And you know, w- one example that I thought about was was the environmental conservation movement. I mean, that's a weird one because I would have thought. It would have had its natural home in the conservative movement, um, not in a sort of liberal uh, movement. Okay. Well, you're, well, for instance, you're you're speaking to one of the most um, uh, broken advocates of zero emissions nuclear power. I mean, I, I've, I've, I strongly, I strongly, I strongly support uh, conservation movements. So, uh, conservationism has a long history on the right, which has been forgotten. Theodore Roosevelt, one of the sort of great conservative figures. Um, he was a, he was a massive conservationist, uh, and so he you know, he built in many respects the American national park system. I mean, uh, conservatism does have a long history of wanting to conserve, and it's not just the natural environment, but the built environment. Let's move to you, Tim, and just look at that relationship with liberalism and the progressive left. I mean, at the moment, liberalism does seem to be under attack from the very progressive left, saying that not only has liberalism presided over a huge amount of injustice, of racism, colonialism, gender discrimination over the past few centuries. But that it's inherently blind to marginalised groups and to their discrimination because it sees, it just sees individuals and can't recognise more subtle and systemic forms of discrimination. How do you respond to this, these sort of attacks on liberalism, and can liberalism adapt to satisfy the challenges of the of the progressive left? Well, first, I'm extremely hostile to their characterisation, um, but I do think we we go through different eras of liberalism um, in response in part to how people want to centralise control and decision-making over time. And I write about this in my book, um, the new social contract, mm. particularly around what's happened in what you know we broadly call the neoliberal order or a liberal era. Uh, and the fact is that one of the, the critical challenge liberalism needs to confront is the challenge of justice and inequality within yeah. society. And I really believe that. I mean, I think it's extremely important. And I put a particular emphasis on um, intergenerational um, equity and what we need to do because uh, a critical part of having a liberal society is having it stay open so that people can be empowered and advance and fulfil the the fullness of their life. And I think one of the things that's emerged over the past 30 to 40 years is kind of structural, and this is where I'm kind of a bit critical of conservatism, um, structural entrenchment of interests, um, which particularly economic interests, which have made it harder for the next generation to be able to live out their lives, particularly in things like tax law, which we can go into the specifics of if we want. But um, right. but that's where it's, it's problematic. And so that pursuit of justice actually... I think ultimately comes from uh, a liberal tradition, but I'm not trying to pretend that it doesn't exist on on the the further left um, socialist progressive movements um, as well. But I think they take in a completely different direction because they abandon the whole concept of individual autonomy and agency and responsibility and rights for the collective pursuit of that because they see people as part of a group, which I find incredibly dehumanising. Um, and in addition to that, uh, again, a vehicle by which you end up with people taking control of the mantle of groups to be able to pursue collective agendas rather than actually recognising 
agency, autonomy and dignity, which goes to the heart of what liberalism is anchored in. Mm, mm, fantastic. Well, you said in your book, Tim, that conservatism offers little or nothing to younger Australians. I'm curious, what do you what do you mean by that? Well, in the end, it comes down to uh, if somebody wants to pursue their life, unless they have an established or an entrenched interest in the status quo, which, of course, by their nature, young people are far less likely to have because they haven't had the chance to realise their interests. And again, I imagine Gray would probably half make his head explode because it very much depends on how you interpret conservatism um, and what it and what we're talking about. I guess in that section, I was probably talking more about a kind of ideological conservatism that's emerged, which I think is very challenging politically. Um, but young people want open systems, open governance, open economics, open, open social systems, so they can go about living out their lives. And if what conservatism is seeking to do is to entrench established um, power, then they have no interest unless they're hereditarily enjoying the benefits. Disempowers them. Yeah, disempowers them. But it means that unless you're basically, if you come from a wealthy family um, or you come from a family with traditional power, so you'll find, you know, political families or ones that obviously can confer hereditary privilege, then it actually disempowers their capacity. In fact, there was a book written by a guy called David Willits, who was a ex-Tory MP in the UK who was drawing similar concerns that I was, which is the natural order of things. In fact, you'd argue almost the conservative order of things is that, uh, you know, one generation helps the next come along and that conservative yeah. spirit of stewardship and actually, you know, like a river flows, goes downhill with the generations. And actually what we've yeah. done in areas like tax law is make the water run up the stream. Um, and so we're now conferring more benefits to older Australians at the expense of young Australians. And I would say that's both non-conservative or anti-conservative, but it's also equally illiberal. It's certainly illiberal. Gray, can I ask you, how do conservatives view liberals? Good people. Um, some of our best friends. Um, <laughs> um, uh, probably better people to go out to dinner with in some respects and good people. Uh, we see them as somewhat too in tune with the now and not thinking enough about what they have inherited and what they intend to pass on, if I can put it that way. Um, and, and I'm sure there's a reverse critique of that. Yeah, sort of you did say that you were naive optimists. Yeah, you, you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I actually wouldn't, I, would, I would not say that about you, Tim. But, but, I, but, I, but no, no, I mean that genuinely. I wouldn't say that about you. But I'm saying, so liberalism with a small L, that's generally how we view it. I mean, it's, um, we tend to see liberals as, if I can use, I, I hate to bring the French Revolution into this, but it was always going to happen. We, 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 we see liberals as a sort of the revolution eating its own. They're the people in the, in the, in the tumbrils being rolled to the guillotine thinking, how did this ever happen to us? We were on the right side. And conservatives, we're the people in the Vondi fighting the regime saying, we told them this would happen. The minute you break down these structures, this was always going to happen. You were always going to be next. And that's, that's, that's very that's much fantastic. how... That's very much how we see them. And we, Tim, we, we from, have your, do... from your perspective, how, how, how do liberals see conservatives, I guess, in the least charitable sense? And, and <laughs> we'll get to charity later. Well, you know, that, that's one of the things is I, I'm not generally prone to seeing people least charitably. I like to see the best in them. But I think if I was to say that conservatives see liberals as naive optimists, I'd say that they're, they're by the nature, um, uh, probably learned pessimists. And... Uh, 
I think Gray would probably quite like that description, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's not to say that liberals, liberals, by the way, just for clarity, one of the things about liberalism is that needs it brings together so many different strands of intellectual thought. They are learned, um, but I um, and I don't think they're naive at all. But um, I think that uh, conservatives are pessimists by their nature because. And, and this is why, you know, while I'm a liberal, I very much also define myself by my faith in institutions. And I've said, I've said this a few times already, but really I mean that because I think you do need institutions to limit the indulgence of individuals and to build the structures for empowerment. Um, because Gray's right, liberalism by itself without any sort of institutional anchor will lead to very strange outcomes. But uh, so I'd say they're learned pessimists. Sure. That's sure. a charitable okay. view, and I'm glad that he seems to accept that as a compliment. Lovely, lovely, <laughs> lovely. Gray, in, in a modern ethnically diverse liberal democracy like, like Australia, how do we make conservatism work? Like how do we choose morals and traditions that bind us without excluding people with different traditions, people of other ethnic and cultural groups? Like conservatism can sometimes from the outside come across as thinly veiled racism. Is it more suited to more ethnically homogenous societies than multicultural societies? No, completely reverse. Liberalism actually is much more ethnically homogenous. If you think about the number of people on the left who tout homogenous Nordic countries as their as their models, so like Sweden or Denmark and the like, without as somehow their models not not accounting for the fact for the fact that they are basically homogenous societies. Quite the reverse. Conservatism actually works very well in the context of a polyglot, multi multi ethnic, multi religious society. One of the, not just the British Empire works that way, but the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Habsburg Empire is, in many respects, what conservatives look to with a certain nostalgia. Polyglot, um, polyglot, uh, lightly governed by an efficient bureaucracy in a society of varying different ethnicities, religions, and the like, where people got on. They had a common source of allegiance in in the crown, but otherwise they were left to their own devices. So, for instance, on the cusp of the First World War, the Habsburg army had more Jewish officers than any other, vastly more than other, any other army, comparable army in the First World. Huh. And there's a reason for that, because in the empire, the emperor was the common source of loyalty and no one cared what people's religion So it allows were. people, it allows for multiple voices and it builds traditions and norms yes. around that sort of polyglot yes. world. Yes, yes, and you, and you should accept that. And because I respect my traditions, I can respect someone else's traditions. I respect someone else's beliefs. I respect, when I, when I see someone who's Jewish or Muslim, I'm a Catholic, I respect that. They are finding their own path to God. And I, it's not for me to get in the way of that. And I respect that because when they pray and they hold their, their beliefs um, dear and they hold their families and their inheritance dear, I understand that. I, and I, I actually want have nothing to do with interfering with that. And to your earlier point, when you asked me about conservatism being bad, I mean, it was the popes in the 16th century before the Enlightenment who were talking about the obligation of people enslaving people to not just free them, but to pay reparations. So I, I, I've come back to this. You are never going to understand conservatism unless you understand the importance of religion and people being made in the image and likeness of God. It's one of the reasons why liberalism, liberalism per se, may celebrate the Enlightenment, but conservatives don't, because we see the movement from seeing people in terms of the image and likeness of God to seeing people in terms of their utility is actually very dangerous. That's something we we denounce. We, we do, I'm not saying Tim would ever do this, but I'm saying so it's something that we, we denounce. I also think it's very important to distinguish. I think Anglo-liberalism of the kind I think Tim believes in is very different from, say, the liberalism that conservatism in, on the continent was very much against. And, and, and liberalism on the continent particularly was very jealous. You had to subscribe to a certain type of ideas. 
monarchies, which most of them were, there was the Dutch Republic. Really, as long as you have that common source of allegiance, no one really cares. Like to actually persecute people takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of interest and a lot of energy. Conservatives, perhaps, were a little bit more lethargic. We never quite get around to doing it to the degree that the modern mechanised state does. Okay, so, thank you. That's 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 fascinating and the link with religion. Tim, Jonathan Haidt, who's a social psychologist, wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, which identified a range of moral impulses that he says appear across cultures around the world. He suggested that they're hardwired into us through evolution as sort of moral taste buds. He identified ones like fairness and freedom, loyalty, hierarchy, purity, and each culture and political philosophy puts more or less emphasis on different uh, of these moral tastes and, and creates a different meal with different flavors. But what he discovered is that conservatism, unlike liberalism, uses all the flavors, whereas liberalism just uses a few. And it's the reason he believes that whereas liberalism sort of claims to have found the truth, conservatism keeps winning the votes. It actually sort of appeals to a lot more of our natural impulses. Now, you know, he was a left-leaning liberal who became more conservative after going through this journey. But what do you think, Tim, when you hear this? Is is liberalism just not a broad enough recipe to encompass the full range of human needs and desires, the traditions, norms, all the things that Gray's been talking about? And so that's its sort of natural limiting factor. Well, I think we need to understand that Hyatt's work was done in the context of analysing primarily American political traditions. And so just trying to overlay it in Australia, I don't think works because by its nature, I mean, firstly, America's political tradition is basically divided between, you know, two two different strands broadly of liberalism, one that's a more conservative strand and one that's more a progressive strand, whereas um, the strand that where kind of Gray and I overlap is very much a kind of conservative liberal strand. Um, and right. so um, I actually agree with much of Hyatt's analysis because that reflects the liberalism and how we definitionally talk about it in the Australian context around, you know, I keep coming back to it, but um, institutions and culture as conservative ideals, but when it comes to economic and social policy, it's liberal in its approach in, in what it seeks to achieve in terms of empowerment. And so I think, whereas you compare that to the progressive liberalism that is often defined in the United States, it's very anchored in um, appealing to uh, freedom, but freedom without that sense of responsibility. Just going back to Haidt's work, the, the issue I had with Haidt is that he, he focuses on what is and not on what ought to be. Just because we may be evolved to want hierarchy doesn't mean we shouldn't challenge an immoral leader. And just because the tradition of women staying at home may, may have propped up the nuclear family doesn't mean we ought to deny women the same rights and opportunities for career. Does conservatism just play into some of the more pessimistic, some of the worst aspects of human nature? Um, well, on, on the women's thing, I would, I would point out, certainly in the United Kingdom, the only female prime ministers were both conservatives and both both well to the right of their party. So um, um, that also shows you something about conservatism as a doctrine, and that is it can be very practical when it needs to be. It can actually adopt people uh, when it needs to who certainly might not practical. otherwise be part of the club. Uh, it's very practical. It adopted Benjamin Disraeli, an anglicised Jew, as its leader in the 19th century. It adopted Margaret Thatcher, the Wesleyan daughter of a, the shopkeeper's daughter, as its leader in the 1970s to win power. Conservatism is nothing, if not practical, when it sees a greater objective in mind. So um, on your point about is it just, is it not focused on what ought? Again, uh, I'm going to sound like a broken record. 
I think it is very important that one of the reasons why, I mean, there's the saying about conservatives and tradition, that tradition is not just, tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. And I think what people miss about conservatives is we are trying to preserve something that is meaningful to us and to the society more generally from ruin. Okay, so when you see conservative, you say, what is the what is the conservative project? What is conservative project? And there is no um, dust conservative. There is no ideological you know, document out there that I can point to. I can say many books about conservatism. But there's no one. There's no one at all. But um, conservatism, if I can just put it this way, we are superintenders. We are we are vigilant. We're concerned. And, be, and the reason is you talk about the, the project. One of the things we know about human nature is that Neglect leads to deterioration. Deterioration leads to dilapidation, and dilapidation leads to ruin. We see we have our work cut out as it is. Yeah, protecting. Let's just not the, destroy everything. Is the main aim. Yes, we, we have our work cut out as Horatio at the gate, as yeah. Horatius at the gate. We have we have more than enough work to do with that. And <laughs> frankly, this is perhaps where Tim and I overlap, particularly when we're in the Cold War. We're very skeptical of people with the with the what you, you know, what's the project on the ort side. I think Tim and I both, perhaps for different reasons, are not particularly fond of people being coerced into someone else's ought. Yeah. Now, yeah, conservatives have happy. Co- I'm happy to coerce people in time of war and emergency. I'm more than happy to do that. I'll do it myself. I have no trouble doing that. Yeah. But, but hey, that's because it's, it ultimately becomes an existential threat to the survival yeah. of. Yeah. Okay. That would be okay. my Lloyd, Lloyd, I'm going to ask you a question here, um, and then we'll move over to your side. But, you know, it's common wisdom that as we get older people often move to the conservative side we get a bit more conservative is it because we've discovered that there's more value in traditions in continuity and social order than our naive younger selves suspected or is it because we benefit from the world as it is and don't want young people to break it how how do you make sense of this sort of natural inclination Mm, mm. towards some of the conservative values it's it's a great question. I don't know if I can actually. I, I feel comfortable answering it. What, what I do think is there is evidence and research to show that as people get older, um, but also uh, wealthier, uh, feel more powerful, uh, they feel more and more disconnected uh, from from people who are impoverished, uh, younger, and in that sense, sometimes less uh, empathic. But I think the, the, the quest for certainty, the quest for not having ambiguity in your life, uh, not having change. I mean, change is, you know, as Gray said, uh, when conservatives want to be persecutory, it requires a lot of effort. So does change. It requires, as I frequently say, a lot of intellectual and emotional horsepower. And I get, I sort of get from this conversation more and more the attraction of conservatism. I actually think it makes it uh, somewhat easier. And as Gray was talking, maybe it's because it you're reminded older, me from <laughs> maybe because I'm older. But but it reminds me equally of 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 the sort of so what culturally. You know, conservatism emphasizes such tight norms that the norms then do the work for the individual. You, you know exactly what you have to do. I mean, if you are in Japan, which is roughly a conservative society, the individual doesn't have to do a lot of work. The norms are doing the work, work for you. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, in Tim's argument, uh, more so from a liberal point of view, in loose cultures, uh, say, for example, the States, uh, you know, the individual has to do a lot of work intellectually, socially. Is this person Republican? Is they, are they Democrats? Am I going to get cancelled? Am I not going to get cancelled? Have they got a gun? Haven't they got a gun? I mean, there's a lot of work there, and I can see the attraction 
of conservatism in terms of just requiring people to do a lot less work. But Emil, I do have to just, if you don't Please. mind, just comment on one or two things that came out of this conversation. Um, when I came into this conversation, I was expecting Tim, and, and I love Tim's phrase just in a very simple way to describe liberalism as the breaking up of power. And it has always concerned me that there's a sort of, you know, the paradox of tolerance, as I think previous philosophers have spoken about, that if a society is tolerant without limit, its ability to be tolerant can be eventually destroyed by the intolerant. Now, what, what, what I liked about this conversation, what it certainly clarified for me is, and Tim, I may have got this wrong, but it's that Tim is still articulating and liberalism is still at this level articulating the importance of institutions at, at some point to limit the, the power of what Gray would say, the bad individuals uh, who, who can destroy government. So for me, there was, there was a lot of clarification. And I must say, I have to say, I had not thought of this in any way. Um, when Gray spoke about conservatism actually respecting heterogeneous societies sometimes rather than homogenous yeah, societies, I, I, that, that was a complete big insight for me and certainly broke a, a massive fiction in my head. Okay, well, we're going to move to you now, uh, Lloyd, for section two, where, where you explore the principle of charity in a bit more detail. So firstly, Gray, Gray and Tim, thank you for that conversation. A key to the principle of charity is the ability to actually get to be more understanding of the other side. And rather than find the weakest argument in the other side, it is to find the strongest argument because it's just too easy to destroy an opponent or to destroy opposition uh, to your thinking by just looking at the weakest sides. And so in this part of the show, what I'd like to do is start maybe with you, Tim, and, and ask you, having listened to Gray, but your, 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 your understanding of conservatism, what, what are the strongest arguments for conservatism? Sure, I think the, the strongest arguments for conservatism are its sense of stewardship. And I think that's incredibly important and something that, um, because it goes to the heart of that whole concept of responsibility, as well as uh, uh, wishing to hand institutions alike over but the other one is loyalty and i really do think this is incredibly important because one of my great frustrations with many people who in contemporary society define themselves as conservatives and i don't really know why they do is i find them incredibly disloyal um and and i know that uh, that's getting a, some approval and i find that very challenging because i don't understand how you can be a conservative and be disloyal gray how, how did tim do very well no, no, very well. Um, Tim is a great spokesperson for his cause. No, was he a great spokesperson for your cause? He was. He, that was a very fair summation. That was a very, very summation. And he's right. Loyalty, the reason why I'm nodding, loyalty is such an important aspect of conservatism, and it's sadly a virtue that's sadly lacking in all too many people who claim to be conservative. Great. What, what's Tim's and, and, and the liberal uh, liberalism's strongest argument rather than their weakest argument? Strongest yeah. argument, um, I, had a, I had a good thing about this, the strongest argument of liberalism is, is the individual. And, and the rights of the individual and the rights of the individual to basically live their life and to be to be free. Um, and I say that unironically, to be to be free and able to determine their own destiny and, and, and to be as free as, as is possible. That that is something that and I'm not saying free is in license. I'm just saying free, free, free to do their thing. 
And and so that to me is the strongest argument for liberalism insofar as it's trying to fashion um, in the in the Anglo sense a set of institutions around to for that individual to do that. And so that to me is always the strongest argument for for liberalism is is the individual. And um, while while conservatives may say no man is an island, the fact is man in himself is actually man in him or herself or woman in herself. They're very important in themselves because every individual is important. So that's the strongest argument I see with, liber- with liberalism. Uh, generally, does that is that right. fair? Tim, what's what's your what's your answer? You <laughs> I'm happy with that? that, but I I think one of the the things that's happened to liberalism is it's become a bit too anchored in the conversation around the individual and their freedom, and that it's the individual with the full complexity that sits behind it, freedom, responsibility, and critically, that liberalism's role is much about empowerment of the individual, which comes with it all those responsibilities as well. So, you know, Gray's 100% right. Um, It's about, uh, but I think it's got to have a broader intellectual um, basis that, um, that buttresses it than just saying it's about that individual and their freedom to choose. I'm going to change tack now and sort of get to the principle of charity from a more personal point of view. When we introduce the show, uh, we say that the principle of charity in part is to seek the truth, not win the fight. It is encouraging people to talk to each other rather than at each other. And I was thinking both of you are in professions or in work in which it's often a zero-sum game. So in parliament, in politics, Tim, you lose your job uh, if you don't win. Uh, If the Labor Party do better, you lose your job. Um, And I assume, uh, Gray, that in in particularly sort of as a barrister, um, when you, you know, when you are in that space, uh, you are looking to win. How do you, I mean, is the principle of charity even relevant in law and in all legal advocates, all lawyers, be they solicitor, barrister or whatever, um, they all have a duty to the court that overrides everything else. And so they have to be honest and frank. And you also have to be courteous with your opponent. And very often, like an opposition, I guess, in a parliamentary sense, you want to be courteous with your opponent because one day you will have the weaker case and you may be requiring on them to be charitable towards you. And also, I think just of yourself, you, you always have a choice in how you behave. You always have a choice in how you conduct yourself. And and that's a choice that you want to make in a way that is honourable uh, and decent mm-hmm. and is respectful. Um, and as I often say to pe- people, uh, I mean, we're all different. We're all built differently as people. I mean, one of the sort of searing events of my life is losing my parents. Mm-hmm. And I always say to people that whenever I, I you know, communicate or I appear or something, I, I like to think my parents are watching and I like to think they're proud of me. And that, that, that means a lot to me as a person. Mm-hmm. And um, perhaps that's the conservative sense of you, of the ancestral inheritance. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things that's very important. So... Yes, the principle of charity, I think, is always important. I think it's just a matter of just being a decent person, something that, as a conservative, you believe you always have a choice over. Okay, so, great. Thank you. So, I mean, principle of charity for you in politics? I think it would be fair to say that we struggle with the concept of charity at election time, um, mm-hmm. but I think in terms of whom gets elected and their service, um, it's resolutely important for exactly the same reasons uh, that Gray outlined. 
you know, it, it's it's very heavily anchored in um, the tradition of Australian politics that the people on the other side of the chamber and adversarial political system are your opponents, not your enemies. It should be a contest of ideas that are reasoned through debate. Now, we don't always achieve that, but it does sit there. But I think the other part of it, and it goes to how you see that service and if you see that service, if you see politics and parliament as a job, I think you'll fail this test of charity. But if you see being in parliament as something greater, and I certainly do, it is a form of service which also helps you manage the downsides to it because you realise it's for a more noble cause, but it's also where your loyalty resides. Do you see your loyalties residing to yourself, to your party, etc.? And I have a very clear hierarchy of my structure of loyalty. Mm. The nation first, um, the community I represent second, the party I represent uh, third, and then self always last. And so you'd be comfortable, sorry to interrupt, you'd be comfortable to go against the party if, if, it, if it was uh, dissonant to your beliefs around the nation? You'd be if, if, it was a, if it literally came down to either survival of the nation or you know, what is intrinsically at the heart of um, the national interest, then resolutely yes, that is not in question. Okay. I think, Tim, you, you know, uh, as I understand, you've been uh, what I would say is a hawk on China. Maybe that's is, is that fair? Uh, Gray, I'm, I'm, I'm probably less uh, insightful on your view, but I'm going to make an assumption, probably also a hawk on China. Uh, I'm a small age hawk. If, if, we are, if we are applying the principle of charity, which is to find the alternative strongest argument for the other side, if you were representing and try to explain China and why they are entitled to be antagonistic to Australia, what, what would that voice say? Well, I don't, I don't know that you can come up with a conclusion about um, antagonism, but I think what if you look from their perspective, you would say um, we have a pact with our people, which meaning China has a pact with their people, that we give you prosperity as, um, as a trade-off for compliance and conformity. Uh, and we have sought to give this to many other countries and a country like you has become very rich. You were already very rich, but substantially richer because of our openness and willingness to at least trade with you to date. Uh, and I think they, I can understand why they would turn around and say, uh, you have now turned around and said, there are a lot of price tags attached to that pact, one that we haven't signed up to. And in fact, sometimes we feel insulted by the proposition of how you treat us, right. because there is a big cultural divide about um, about how they would perceive our behaviour. And I think if you're charitable, you'd say, I can understand why there are some people who feel that way, um, mm. but part of it comes also from their over-expectation of uh, uh, the nature of the, and the relationship that existed between us. Right. Gray, would you add anything else to that to the China I, argument I, from their perspective? I, I, I would I would add I would I'd would, agree with him, but I'd add two things. One is I think from the Chinese would say, uh, as you would be well aware, our history is one of either uh, warring fiefdoms or one central government, and you would understand why it's very, very important for our central government to be able to have strength and to be able to reorder our our society and project power. So, you know, you're a young country. Uh, you are you are nothing in the history of China. China is a great power. We have been in existence as a kingdom long, you know, millennia before anyone thought of your country. Secondly, they would say you're an ally to our greatest antagonists. You're a great ally to our historic enemy in Japan, and you are part of pacts that are trying to encircle us and contain us. Mm. We see that as an unfriendly act. Now, that is what I think they would say. Now, I would obviously take issue with that, but that is what yeah, I think they would right. say. 
great. That's, that's very helpful. I want to go back to, to, to both of you personally. When I was researching both of you and looking at some of the video clips on you and listening to you, I sort of am struck with both of you that you come under, both of your public figures, you come under a lot of attack, bearing in mind you take strong positions. You know, in my experience, when you come under attack, the first thing you want to do is defend yourself and uh, rather than actually listen to what other people are saying, how do you you remain objective or try and keep to a principle of charity, which is to listen to the other side when people are telling you, you know, that you, you, you're not so good. Uh, and I assume every morning 48% of uh, the population on either side will say, you know, they wake up and they've already got their bias towards you, Tim, and, and towards you, Gray. Gray, let's start with you. I'm not so much a public figure. I'm, I'm just someone who gets called on to things to talk because there's a lack of actual conservative conservatives who will put their heads above the parapet. Um, in my case, as I think I said before, um, first of all, you have to look at someone criticizing you. They may actually have a very valid point. You, you may have something wrong. And I think you have to have a certain humility before the facts and a preparedness to say, actually, I got this wrong. And it's also why you as a person, regardless of your politics, need, need people around you to tell you when you've actually got something wrong and you need to correct. So that's the first thing. Secondly, um, I don't know. I, I don't want to come back to the religion thing, but you, you bear in mind that um, you, know, you have a choice in how you behave um, and uh, you'll be judged um, when you, if you're, for instance, a Catholic, you, you'll be judged when you die on how you conducted yourself. And even small, petty things like responding to people who insult you, attack, you have a choice in just letting that go through to the keeper. Um, I have one advantage, I guess. I, I went to uh, I went to an all-boys school. I went to Riverview. And so I have the height of a rhinoceros. So um, I quite enjoy, I quite, I, people people attacking me or being, I find some of it quite funny. So I, I actually, it, it's, it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing to me. So so I kind of let it bounce off me, and I think I think you have a choice just to you know, to sort of just take 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 the uh, take the um, the blows of outrageous fortune, if I can put it that way, and just get on with your life. Because I I think it diminishes you if you engage with someone who wants to diminish you. Tom, how do you cut personally? Well, because I, I mean I I love the contest of ideas and always have, and so uh, I rarely take commentary personally sometimes people do and they do it deliberately and sometimes you can let it get under your skin but um, if you see it as part of the contest of ideas and knowing that you are not the arbiter of truth I'm not the arbiter of truth um, and that uh, exactly as Gray said you know you need a humility which sometimes we may fail to um, project I need to be clear about that to actually listen understand not just what people are saying but what the motivations are beneath what they're saying, because um, I would actually take contest was one of the things you said before around age and how people get more conservative as they get older. Mm. I actually Mm. find older people become more empathetic rather Mm. than the reverse. And the reason I think that is because people then see more of the human experience. I find young people actually quite... Um, narrow, dogmatic, and often lacking empathy. Now, that, of course, there will be yeah. some people have who are young who hold more empathy, but um, uh, because they, we are only the sum and part of our own lived experience, and of course, what we inherited. And as a consequence, if we don't have that embodied in how we see the world, then we will become limited. Mm. I, and I openly can see this. I was a better person and a rounder person after spending my time as human rights commissioner, even though I was naturally very interested in the rights of the individual and people's freedom to be able to live out their lives simply through lived experience. 
Um, mm. I was spending a lot more time uh, with a much broader diversity of people than I would have um, previously and that we have to accept that we're all on our journey. And, in yeah. fact, one of the reasons I wrote a, a book was in part to reflect the fact that I have been on a journey and that I had sharper edges when I was younger and they're rounding out over time because I'm learning and growing and it's important to recognise that you always have more to learn and grow. No, I think I think that's a that's a good point. I, I certainly would say for myself, as you were saying, I think I've grown to be much more empathic and uh, looser in 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 certainly my views than I would have been in my twenties or or thirties when I was extremely dogmatic. Just just on that, um, and and both of you have spoken about humility, but if you looked at yourself now. And when you debate, both of you, you know, are in debates, are they in parliament, on television, uh, courts of law? In order for people to be more charitable to you, just to you as a person, what's the one or two behaviors you think you could change in yourself that would signal, that would allow people or signal to others that would allow them to be more charitable to you? If you could just make a change tomorrow Mm -hmm. and say, geez, if I just did that, I know people would just listen to me more. Uh, I suspect it's if I spoke a bit slower um, because I think that speed, and I unfortunately naturally speak very fast, but by its nature projects a confidence and sometimes a hubris um, Mm. in in the sense of confidence uh, in your ideas and and seems to discount, um, it projects the idea that you're discounting the opinion of others. Um, and I, I have, you know, in politics, and this is one of the perpetual challenges in politics, if you're interested in talking about ideas, ask more questions rather than assert more answers. And mm-hmm. um, and by my nature, I'm a very combative politician because it's a combative environment. And right. that means that you're naturally not going to have a dialogue. You're going to, at best, have a, a heated debate. And um, But the part of the challenge of parliament is outside of the Inside the parliamentary structures, we have the capacity to ask questions, but in the parliament itself, it's very limited. And of course, that's how most people see parliament. Whereas in the, let's call it inquiry component of parliament and the committee work, we actually get to have that dialogue. Great. Gray, how about you? What what would make people more charitable to you if you could just change one of your behaviours? Uh, you know, the saying is, you know, confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. Um, I, uh, I, would, I would, I would, I would, I would perhaps, perhaps uh, be a little bit less, uh, I wouldn't say combative, but um, I, I think it's, I think a lot of us, you know, just sort of grow into bigger versions of ourselves. And I think uh, when we grow up, we, we sort of just grow into an older and I mean, not everyone, but I think a lot of us do. And I think I'm, I'm no less susceptible to this than anyone else. Um, probably less uh, less combative and less, I guess, aggressive to some degree um, and perhaps more able to show that behind the combative and aggressive person, there is actually a quite empathetic... So you're more person. comfortable with yourself? Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I've always kind of been comfortable with myself, but I am I'm just by nature as someone who... Um, and this is not the the learned pessimism of Tim. I think this is more me. Um, I, I, I just think I just think I, I guess by habit of training, perhaps this is a military thing. I I've, I think it's important that you make clear where you stand and you make sure you're giving a lead for others to follow, and that you're a sort of assertive type of person, and that um, you're clear about where things are. And so 
you're almost sort of daring someone to take you on in some respects. Mm. And there's, there's an element of that um, perhaps that I have. Um, I, but for me, it's different. I, 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 I'm sure it's different. I want people, when I when I speak to them, to understand this is what I think. This is what I believe. I'm not sugarcoating this for you. This is what I think. Right. And I really don't care if you you hate me for it. This is what I believe. And 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 I'm and I'm not scared of you. And and I have no fear of you. Yeah. I fear of other things, but you are not something I fear. And so it's very important if you're if you're a holder of like minority views, as you are in some respects as an actual conservative, um, you make that clear to people. Especially not, on ABC not, for you. Yeah, exactly. Well, see, I enjoy that. I mean, this is the strange thing. I, I have people, including one of uh, Tim's colleagues, who said to me, "It's great that you go on the ABC. What are you going to say?" I love going on the ABC. That's I love going into the belly of the beast. I love going into that. Completely I agree. love that. <laughs> I, I love that. I'd, I'd much rather go into the ABC than anywhere else. It is great to be just on guard. Let's get into this. Okay. It's great. Let me can I say that one of critical reasons oh, why that is is because it also forces you to confront. Yes your own ideas and its limitations, you know, mm. I, I, because if, if you want to hear a difference of opinion or reflect um, and challenge, and I'm not saying this of the ABC, but I'm saying this in terms of confronting a diversity of voices, I get more and learn more and grow more by disagreeing with people than, I, of course, you'll ever get from agreement or going on a pro program where everybody just tells you you're 100% right or they agree with you everyone with every step of the way. Yeah. Can I, Gray, I just want to come back to a comment you made to Emil earlier and when you were chatting, you know, you spoke about the great respect you have for your parents and, and honouring them. And, you know, that makes sense also from a conservative ideology point of view. Is there any point in your life where you actually look at your parents and say they got that wrong? Is there any point when you go and you say, you know what, that's just, that that tradition those ideas are just wrong. That's a, that's a great question. Um, without getting too personal, I mean, your parents, even, even the most perfect parents, are human beings. They, they, they make mistakes and, and you don't necessarily want to replicate everything, but they are also the people who fashion you into the person you are and they help you the way you are and you learn a lot from them. And I, I don't think you appreciate, certainly I didn't, uh, just how amazing your parents are even after they've passed away until later and you you meet people who didn't have that mm. and i I'm, i had this experience years ago where i used to have law students and i'd mentor them and i remember one of them who'd grown up with without a father um he was telling me he'd just got his first interview and he and i said oh that, that's great and, and he said i just don't know what to do and i realized i knew all that like i i knew what you did i i knew how you behaved i knew how you dressed i, I just instinctively knew all that because i lived with that with my father I, I knew all that this was someone who didn't know all of this mm. and they, they didn't have this and you realize actually that's unfair. That guy missed out. And that's, that's something that actually upset me, but because I think, well, yeah, I've got to help this guy because my, my, I, I grew up with parents who were very, very charitable to other people. Um, I often say to people that, uh, you know, on refugee issues, I'm slight, I'm something of a bleeding heart in the sense of not, not an, not an open borders bleeding heart, but I'm for resettling from abroad. Uh, my mother, uh, my mother, who was a very conservative woman, um, you know, she wrote letters, one of the things I knew growing up, she wrote letters to the Vietnamese refugees in the seventies mm. to have them admitted and and that's something that I yeah. I very much respect. So, yes, yes, if you grow up say like with parents who are perhaps tyrants, but even people I know who grew up to have very different politics from their parents. I mean, everyone knows one of the biggest problems with conservative parents is they give rise to green, uh, malingering voters who stay at home for far too long. Um, um, everyone knows that's a major problem. I'm sure Tim knows Definitely. that. Definitely can't say it. But 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 I mean, even but they still love their parents. They're still your parents. They're still home and. 
Um, George Orwell's line in The Unicorn is great on this, on the on the familial inheritance and so on. And that's just something I think we all have. And I, I don't necessarily know that makes you any more conservative or liberal because I think all of us have a fondness for what we know. Beautiful. I'm going to close it up there. I want to thank both of you for your time. I have learnt an absolute fortune. That was great. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Just a reminder that if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And we encourage you to hop onto our Principle of Charity socials and get involved in the conversation yourself. We're at the end of an era and on the precipice of a new one. What do we keep? What do we leave behind? Hear from 16 thinkers, including Stephen Fry, Roxane Gay, Slavoj Zizek, Walid Ali, Naomi Klein, Peter Singer, Sam Mostyn, and more. Eight conversations, eight responses in sound, one podcast to record this moment. Subscribe to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas wherever you find your podcasts and join us at The In-Between. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.